Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The Rose Bowl. The game that inspired the college football bowl season has a long and storied history. The stadium itself is 100 years old, and in celebration of it, Pigskin Dispatch is assembling some of the top historians and authors to share the memories, people, and events that make the granddaddy of them all the special game that it is. Enjoy this Rose Bowl memory from pigskindispatch.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pig Pen, your place for all great football history. And we have some excellent football history today because we're talking about more Rose Bowl games, people, places, and events that uh, you know aspired from that great venue out in Pasadena, California. And we have some great historians to share it with us. And another one tonight is Matthew Debios. Matthew, welcome back to the Pig Pen to talk about some more Rose Bowl. Thank you, Darren. Thanks for having me back on again. It's always an honor and a privilege. Oh, it is honor is all ours because uh, you know, your history and your research on this history of football is just excellent. And we, we love how you give us the backgrounds on many of these players and especially the coaches uh, from your, your very excellent books that you have out there. Gives us a great baseline for what's going on in these games. So what are you going to talk about tonight, Matthew? I like for us to talk about the 1935 Rose Bowl featuring the Alabama Crimson Tide versus Stanford University. Now, the 1935 Rose Bowl was significant in that it was the last college football game played by Alabama Crimson Tide pass-catching immortal Don Hudson and future NFL immortal. Yeah, it, this was his last college football game. It's significant because it I believe it was the third time that Alabama University, again, appeared in the Rose Bowl there. It was also the first Rose Bowl, uh, I, I believe the first Rose Bowl appearance by the head coach at Alabama, Frank Thomas, who succeeded Wallace Wade, who had led Alabama to their first Rose Bowl appearance in 1926. He was he was now the head coach at Alabama University. And this was their first return here. And also in 1934, uh, according to one of the retroactive organizations, this uh, 1934 Alabama team that appeared in the in 1935 Rose Bowl won a, a mythical national championship there, as did the 1925 Alabama Crimson Tide did and when they won the 1926 Rose Bowl there, another mythical national championship. Actually, that 25 Alabama team was a consensus. Like Four of the major retroactive organizations that evaluate national champions they all said, yeah, it was unanimous. He said, yeah, Alabama, that 25 Alabama team was a national champion. And one of the retroactive organizations, I forget which one, I think it was Billingsley or the Holgate system, 
ruled this 1934 Alabama team was a national champion. They, again, had a perfect record. They were 9-0 and going into the game, and they were taking on Stanford University, who, the, although they didn't have a perfect record, they were unbeaten. They were 9-0-1. And the Stanford team they were taking on was a pretty tough team, too. These, This was, the, I believe, the second Rose Bowl appearance by what a college football historians call the Val Boys. The Val Boy, the Stanford team, were called the Val Boys because uh, in their rivalry against USC and their fir- this this team, they lost to USC. And the players who took part in that game were so stung by that loss, they made a solemn vow to themselves that as long as we're together, we continue playing in Stanford University, the remainder of our eligibility, we will never lose to USC ever again. And guess what? They kept that promise. For the next three years, they beat USC, and they they are the power in what we now know as the Pac-12 Conference, but that back then was simply called the Pacific Conference. They made three consecutive Rose Bowl appearances. The first Rose Bowl appearance by the Val Boys, they lost to Columbia University on a fluke play. It was a naked reverse that fooled everyone on the Stanford team, and they lost. And now, But they came back again. You know, in 1934, they came back again. They had an unbeaten record. And they were going to take on the Alabama Crimson Tide. Now, the Crimson Tide under Frank Thomas. Thomas was Wallace Wade's successor. In our previous show, we talked about Wallace Wade. Wallace Wade, le- I believe he left, okay, his last season there was 1931, where, again, he led Alabama to a Rose Bowl victory. And, and I think uh, it was at one of those mythical national championships. He moved on to Duke University because Wallace Wade, uh, was having trouble getting along with Alabama President Denny. I forget Denny's first name. Both two very dominant personalities, and there's only room for one dominant personality. And Wallace Wade spent some time looking for a golden parachute, and he found it at Duke University because this is during the Great Depression now. Duke was offering mucho, mucho money, much more money than he was getting in Alabama. And also, they promised never to get in his way and bother him, whereas at Alabama, Denny was getting in his way. So Wallace Wade, he found a golden parachute. He is out of there. And the man who takes his place is Frank Thomas. And Frank Thomas's pedigree, he was one of Newt Rockney's bright boys. He was a teammate of the George Gipp, the Gipper, the original Gipper. During those unbeaten teams, he was the quarterback in the backfield of those uh, Notre Dame teams that featured George Gipp that won national championships in 1919 and 1920. Incredibly smart, brilliant individual. He was born, I think he was the child of Welsh immigrants, lived in Indiana, played under Rockney. And Rockney saw they had coaching potential. I mean, he was brilliant. uh, I mean, he was like a coach on the field. And Rockney encouraged him to get into coaching. And after he graduated, he was doing assistant coaching work. Um, He was like an assistant coach at Georgia Tech. And in fact, he introduced the famed Notre Dame box formation with its uh, tricky, with its backfield shifting and tricky reverses and all that to Georgia Tech, which revolutionized its offense and all that. And then later, his first head coaching job was at uh, Chattanooga University there. It was just, uh, you know, just very small. It was kind of like small. Uh, there was no such thing as Division Two back then, but you could say it was like Division Two pl- player right now. But he was doing good work, and then finally Wallace Wade tapped him to be an assistant coach at Alabama. So he saw his potential there, 
And basically he let Thomas know, he said, I'm on my way out. I want you to succeed me. In fact, he recommended that Thomas be his successor when he did leave Alabama after the 1931 season. So Thomas takes over and he alters the Alabama offense. Whereas Wallace Wade was using a punt pass in the prayer, Alabama. Now Thomas is using the Notre Dame box, which is a lot of quickness, a lot of backfield shifting reverses, what they call spinners, lots of uh, ball manipulation, tricky concealment and all that, fakes, play fakes. And he's got some bright young talents, and one he's got three very bright young talents, a, a tailback named Dixie Howell who had a real good cannon for an arm, and a, a, a fast, bla- fast offensive end with blazing speed named Don Hudson a golden-haired beauty named Don Hudson. And Howell to Hudson was the greatest pass passing tandem in college football in the 1930s. I mean, Hudson had just blazing speed. I mean, he would just he, – he would leave everyone in the dust. And the other offensive end and defensive end, because these guys all played two-way football, even Hudson played both ways, was a bear, big bear-like guy with very bushy eyebrows tough named Paul Bear Bryant. Hmm. And yeah, he was the other end, but he wasn't much of a pass catcher, but boy, he was a run blocker. And if any opponent ever did took took a cheap shot on one of his teammates, guess who the enforcer was? Bear Bryant. And he could pay. Oh yeah. He would, if you got dirty, oh, he would get dirty with you back and he would hurt you. He was big for his time, big and hulking. Uh, and uh, he was a toughie and on defense, he, he, he would kill you. He just, he'd level everybody there. So that, that was the golden triumvirate for Alabama football there in that game. And they all went out on the West coast there. And, you know, Thomas, was kind of a little more in terms of his personality. He was nicer. I mean, he was still disciplined, but he was not the steely-eyed guy like Wallace Wade was. I mean, there was there, it was a bit of a softer side, and he was a mentor. In fact, it was he who saw the coaching potential in Bear Bryant. He said, "When you're done playing, I want I want you to think about coaching." And Bear Bryant immediately took to it like a duck to water. In fact, he started off as an assistant coach under Frank Thomas until finally he began his own head coaching career, uh, like at the university of Maryland and all of that in the 1940s and in, in the Navy. And then after world war two, you know, with Kentucky at the university of Kentucky, but it was Thomas who saw that potential. And in fact, Bear Bryant was high, heavily influenced by Thomas, uh, his emphasis on quickness. Uh, other teams might be have bigger in size, but they could now quick his teams, uh, the use of trickery, fakery and all that emphasis on the ground game. And stuff like that all, all came from Frank Thomas there, who, of course, learned it from Newt Rockney. So you've right. got that lineage there. Yeah, it all goes back to Rockney and all that shifting and all that. And also and not afraid of the emphasis on building great quarterbacks, because I, I think about Bear Bryant. Yeah, he built some great quarterbacks. Kenny Stabler, Joe Namath, Jeff Rutledge. Yeah. He, yeah, that's, that's another thing about that. Yeah, a Bay Perilli at University of Kentucky there. He did all some great ones. Yeah. 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 Most, most definitely did. So you, 
you mentioned uh, in a previous episode, you know, that uh, the Alabama game from uh, 1920 is the first appearance by Alabama it was the first national radio broadcast. And it inspired uh, a young Bear Bryant who was listening to that radio broadcast when yeah. Alabama won. So, yeah. you know, now now we see it coming a little bit more full circle. Him That's as right. uh, one of the key players in that Alabama attack and you know later yeah. on as a coach. So uh, great job. I like to emphasize one point to our listeners. People are so used to the fact that they that always in the Rose Bowl, it's usually the Big Ten representative taking on the Pac-12 representative. But before 1947, that was not so. It was wide open. Anybody could really uh, play in that Rose Bowl game. You okay? You had a West Coast representative. Usually, what was now you know now the Pac-12. Back then, it was called the Pacific Coast Conference. But the Eastern representative could be anybody. It could be for the South. From the northeast, Midwest, uh, it was it was very it was wide open back then. It wasn't institutionalized. The Big Ten taking on the Pac-12 until 1947, so it was very wide open. And in many ways, the Rose Bowl was kind of seen as a national championship game in certain respects. I mean, this is especially before the uh, the poll era, which began in 1936 when the AP poll came out with its first national champion there. It was seen. It, it was seen in that light. Usually, the the team that would win the Rose Bowl would kind of be seen as kind of like a national champion in the myth, unofficial mythical sense. There, just want to clarify to our listeners here. Okay. Yeah, and uh, and also by thirty five, I think also that's when you see the beginning of the other bowl games. I think was it thirty four or thirty five? You see Cotton Bowl. You see the Orange Bowl. Uh, and uh, and uh, and then the Sugar Bowl, and then as years pass, you also see the lesser bowl games being developed and all that. But by the by thirty four or thirty five, you start seeing the other the major bowl games being introduced, being introduced that we know and love today. Hmm. All right. Yeah. So okay, so we got these two outstanding teams, uh, you know, meeting at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. But what happened during the game? Uh, Stanford draws first blood. Bobby Gray, uh, Bobby Grayson, their tailback scores and all that. But then, starting in the second quarter, it is all Alabama. They score twenty-two unanswered points. Uh, Dixie Howell, a tailback, scores on a five-yard touchdown plunge. Then uh, Alabama kicks a field goal, uh, make it nine, make it nine-seven, and then. Uh, Dixie Howe scores on another uh, a touchdown, but about 67 yard touchdown run there. So he scores two touchdowns. And then to end the second quarter, he hits Don Hudson on a 54 yard bomb uh, on a bomb there. No, actually, it's not uh, Howell throws it. It's uh, it's uh, uh, Riley there who throws who throws the touchdown pass. But again, Hudson, you know, he, he he breaks it. He breaks it loose. Then in the third quarter. Stanford kind of comes back and makes it close. They get another touchdown to make it uh, 22-12. It's kind of semi-close, but in the fourth quarter, Hudson uh, clinches the game, a 59-yard touchdown pass from uh, Dixie Howell. That that ices the game, and they win 29-13. And again, it was Don Hudson's last college football game. There was no NFL draft, but he drew the eyes of Curly Lambeau of the Green Bay Packers, who signs him to a pro contract. And Don Hudson scores a touchdown on his very first play from scrimmage in his very first NFL game. And he literally becomes the NFL pass catching record book. He set the standard for all future NFL pass catchers to 
emulate and eventually surpass. And, and a lot of them, it took years receiving yardage, touchdown scored. I mean, before Jim Brown came along, it was Don Hudson who scored more touchdowns than any other NFL player, 99 in his career. And then finally, Jim Brown broke it. Uh, I mean, I think I think today Don Hudson still holds the NFL record for most points scored in a game. Was it 40? I think he scored 41 or something like that. I think that's still the NFL record, if I'm not mistaken, Darren. I, if I recall correctly, I I, I think it is. You know, I, I think it is. Yeah, it's it's right up there. I know that. I, yeah. Very close. Hey, uh, I, I, very close and all hey, that. Do you think about this, you know, back in the 1920s and, you know, for college game in the 20s and, and 30s and 40s when uh, Hudson's playing, you know, passing the ball was not the popular method of offense. It was, right. it was still the running game and you wanted, you know, the brute force of just pounding away at your opponents. And, you know, when yeah. you have somebody that's doing this, that nobody else is doing, you know, things that nobody else is doing, catching these long passes, running these pass routes, you know, so crisp and just outrunning people, blown right by him defenses weren't ready for that and uh he yeah. really like you said he really put the foot, game of football on notice that hey you can win by throwing the ball and uh you know, yeah and those early defenses in those days in the 20s they were using like a 7-2-2 defense and then later it became like a 6-2-3 defense but if you're in a double wing formation you've got two ends and two wing backs if you flood the passing lanes with four receivers all the tailback has to do if he's got time is Wait for the open man. Wait for that safety to commit to someone and boom, hit the open man. I mean, Sammy Ball did that all the time when he was with the Washington Redskins. He did that to perfection. And they had to alter defenses to accommodate, you know, the fact that you could flood it with four pass catchers and all that. And Hudson was no exception. I mean, he just, it wasn't exactly precise routes that we know today where you take X amount of steps. He was allowed basically to articulate his own routes. And basically what Dixie Howe was waiting was, I'm waiting for Don to get open. The moment he gets open, boom, then I can hit him. But it, but it was Hudson who would basically, he was kind of improvising. He would just articulate, he would kind of work out his own little routes. It wasn't really prescribed. It was it was him using his instincts, finding seams, and then running to daylight, and then Dixie Howell waiting for him to, uh, okay, now I find a seam, boom, hit him like that. And again, when Hudson went to the NFL, just like Red Grange did in the mid-1920s, Hudson's going to the NFL, again, added greater legitimacy to NFL football. And it was an inspiration to other college football prospects. And hey, Hudson can do it in the NFL. If he can do it, I can do it. And you start seeing other future college football greats like Sammy Ball, Tummy, Tuffy Lehmans, and uh, Bulldog Turner and guys like that. Okay, Sid Luckman. Okay, I can play in the pros too. And they do, and they become pro football legends. And they really help the NFL really establish an even stronger footprint, you know, in, in the American football consciousness. Um, all right. Well, now, Matthew, you have uh, you, some great research that you did on this. And, you know, a good segue into that is you have uh, you talked a little bit about the NFL just now. You've, you've talked about college because of Rose Bowl. You have some great research on a couple great gridiron books uh, that talk about a lot about history that are very interesting. Uh, if you could pass on the, the names of those books and where folks could get them, really appreciate that. Thanks, Darren. Uh, my third book. Lords of the Gridiron, College Football's Greatest Coaches, is up on Amazon. 
It's not available in stores. You must purchase it online at Amazon. It's presently on sale right now at 30% off and remain on sale until after the national championship game is played in mid-January. So if you're looking for a stocking stuffer for Christmas, if you're a fan, if you love Alabama college football or just college football in general, buy this book, you know, because uh, you find you always wanted to know who the great, who the great college football coaches were, who was the greatest of all time. My book answers that question. And if you're a pro football coach, if you want to know what Don Hudson did with the Green Bay Packers, my latest book, which was just released last September, is Lords of the Gridiron 2, in Roman numeral 2, Pro Football's Greatest Coaches. It, too, is on sale at 30% off and will remain on sale at 30% off until after Super Bowl 57 is played in mid-February. So if you love pro football, and I, I cover all the great teams, I, I, I cover it covers all the great coaches and bases there. You want to know who are the greatest NFL head coaches of all time? That My book answers that question there in beautiful detail. And again, you just you can only buy it at Amazon. It's not available in stores. So please purchase it online. And if you want to know how you spell my last name, it's uh, Matthew with two T's. And my last name is D-I-B-I-A-S-E. Just type it in and you'll see my books and buy to your heart's content. <laughs> All right, Matthew, well, appreciate you, you sharing uh, this more great football history, more great Rose Bowl history, and your research is impeccable. And we really love the stories that you tell and the picture that you paint and uh, really appreciate you, sir. So thank you for your time. Thank you, Darren. It's always an honor, privilege, and can't wait to do this again. We're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the Pigpen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. 
is found right here on the Sports History Network.